0: Nice to see you here. I was wondering how many empty chairs I was going to be preaching <laughs> today with the way this Omicron thing has just gone ballistic. And so we're glad you're hopefully healthy and staying healthy. So we're in Ephesians 4. I'll be reading verses 1 to 6. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word to us today. Please be seated. How many of you have made it over to our historic church and at least been in that church once? Okay. Most of you have. I have a picture of our historic church there, as you can see on the screen. Uh, Any guesses at what year that picture was taken? Let's hear a few guesses. 1872, what's, 1852. 1984. (laughs) That actually was the closest one. That picture was taken in 1986. That's right. So what's happening is, as you can see, people are dressed in period costume from the 1800s. It's members of our church at that time. And it's Pioneer Days in Jacksonville. You know, we used to celebrate in Jacksonville Pioneer Days in June. So this was done a Sunday in June. I don't remember. It was probably the third Sunday. That's usually about the time Pioneer Days was celebrated, about the third Sunday of June in 19. 86. And uh, my two oldest children are there in that picture, as well as my wife and myself. The choir, as you can see, is lined up on the stairs. And uh, it was an interesting time. And the reason that I'm showing you this picture is because I wanna talk about the renovation project that was involved. As you can see, there was scaffolding. You're saying, what was that all about? What happened was, we uh, wanted to paint the church in the spring, early spring of that year, and we started looking carefully at the original sugar pine siding, and we determined that it was, uh, a lot of it had rotted. It was in terrible shape, and there's no sense in painting rotted woods, so, you know, we felt like, well, we need to go ahead and renovate the church and replace the siding. So we turned to our choir director, who was the executive director of the Southern Oregon Historical Society. His name was Nick Clark. And we asked Nick to help us. We said, we don't know what to do. How should we proceed? And he said, well, we've had a man up in the Eugene area come down and do some work for some of our buildings down here, and his name is Greg Olson. So we contacted Greg, got in touch with him. He came down, looked at the building, Now Greg happened to be not only a master carpenter, but he was a historic renovation expert. He had a master's degree from York University in England on historic renovation of churches. So it was like the perfect match. And so he had kindly agreed to come down with an assistant for the spring and summer of 86, and it turned out for the next summer as well, spring and summer as well. And he milled the wood himself, all the wood, all that wood is one by eight, really one by eights, you know? None of this three-fourths by seven and a half stuff that you get today. So he had to mill the wood himself. And he put all the wood up, he put insulation in. We had the windows all taken out, including the very large windows on the south side there. They were repaired and uh, the holes were fixed by Tim Yaki over in Ashland. And in November of that year, we had a rededication service to the glory of God. We rededicated the church building to God's glory. And we invited some of the previous ministers who were still alive to come and participate, and they did. And it was a great time for the church. Now, the church at that time, as you can see, there were not a whole lot of people in the church. And uh, the church budget, the annual budget, was $40,000 a year. And so they were barely able to pay me a modest salary. And so uh, Greg told us the estimate for redoing the church was gonna be $28,000. Can you imagine that now? I mean, a lot of us pay more than that to do our kitchen, redo our kitchens now. We could do the whole church for 28,000. So uh, he said it's gonna be 28,000. So we called a congregational meeting. And we informed the congregation that, you know, this was gonna cost $28,000. Well, you would have thought I said $28 million. Because there were people were gasping, people were shaking their heads, kind of like there's no way. We had $8,000 in the bank. That's all we had. And so we knew we faced a formidable challenge in raising money to re-renovate this building. So what did we do? Well, the session asked me, and I, I volunteered, really, but they affirmed this, that I would call a news conference. And so I did one day. I stood at the foot of those stairs, and I invited, we invited the various news groups from the valley to come. And we informed the, the community about our plight, that we were a very small congregation, we really wanted to take care of this historic gem in our community, and we needed the community's help. And so you wouldn't have believed the response. It was unbelievable. I used to get the mail in those days. I would go down. It was like Christmas every day. (laughs) Open up the box. People were sending in checks, $10, $25, $50. And sometimes they included notes with their checks. They'd say something like, you know, my grandmother was married in that church. She's always loved that church or my great grandfather was baptized in that church and uh, we want it preserved. And so the community rallied to our help and it was a wonderful, wonderful kind of coordination between the church and the community of pulling together. Now I didn't realize it at the time of course, and by the way we did, the. When all the bills were paid, it was $42,000. And the church had raised $44,000 through fundraisers and through the help of our community. So we didn't have to borrow a dime to to pay for this thing. And it wasn't until years later that I realized that God had put us through that to prepare us for a much greater task that would occur 10 years later. And that is building this facility, see, and paying for it. So it's interesting how God works in our lives, isn't it? Uh, Many times he's asking us to take some baby steps of faith to prepare us for some much bigger steps of faith that will come later. Now I want to speak today on church unity because this particular event in 1986 and 87 pulled our church together like nothing had. And it not only pulled the church together, it helped the church realize the value the church had in the community, that the community really valued the church, and that they kind of boosted our self-esteem. It made everybody feel like, we're just not a little little country church that nobody cares about. You know, as a matter of fact, we, we have an important role in the community, and we need to celebrate that. We need to affirm it. And uh, so we did. The key verse in our text today about church unity is verse 3. So if you still have your Bible open, which I hope you do, let's look at verse 3. Paul says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's calling the Ephesian Christians to be eager. (laughs) You know, to be eager, to look forward to it, to maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church about the importance of maintaining church unity. And if you would turn in your bulletins, if you got a bulletin today, which I hope you did, there's an outline that I've provided for you. You can see at the top where it says, strive to maintain church unity. See that? Strive to maintain church unity. Church unity requires effort. It requires attention. It requires work. Church unity doesn't just happen naturally. And let me tell you, this is a timely word for the evangelical church in America today. For the past several years, we have been horribly divided over the issue of wearing masks, getting vaccines, how to respond to this pandemic. The church, unfortunately, has not taken the lead. We have been just as divided as our country Divided churches are not healthy friends. They will not grow spiritually or numerically. They are impotent lethargic characterized by strong opinions broken relationships arguments. Divided churches fail in their obedience to being the salt and light Jesus called us to be in our communities. So the question for us is really, what can we do? How should we respond? What do you think the Lord would want us to do today if Jesus came into our midst and was standing here? What would he say to us about our response to this terrible virus that we've been dealing with? What can we do to maintain church unity? Now, I don't care what side of the aisle you're on whether you're a vaxxer, a vaccine person, or an anti-vaxxer, a mask wearer, anti-mask. It doesn't matter at this point. What we're talking about is how do we manage to be together through this. That's what we're talking about. How do we function in a manner in which we show collegiality, in which we show support and love and peace? That's what we're talking about. So I'm not advocating one position or another. I want to be real clear about that. Well, what can we do to maintain church unity? The first thing that we should do, this is number one on your outline, is we are to develop Christ-like attitudes which promote unity. Develop Christ-like attitudes which promote unity. Let's see what Paul says about it. by the way, it's very interesting here, if you look at the whole book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, Paul's really laying a theological foundation for what he's going to say in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And the first thing that he launches into, you can see this where he says, I therefore. Remember, we've learned whenever you see a therefore, you want to find out what it's there for? <laughs> well, it was therefore because he was talking about, you know, our unity in Christ and about how Jesus died for our sins and how we have this new life in Christ And now, how does this apply to us? What's the practical implications? And he begins chapter 4 with this whole thrust about church unity. How the church, you Ephesians, he's telling them, you guys need to pull together. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Celebrate it. Work together. Live together peacefully. That's what he's telling them. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, he was in prison in Rome, urge you, This word means desire with warmth. So he's urging them, he's got this great desire, this great passion for them, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now the type of walk being described here in the original text is not just a casual stroll. It's rather walking in a prescribed or fixed order or manner. And, of course, the manner that we are to follow here is Christ. We are walking after him. We are following him, you see. So this is what Paul begins this section, this practical implication section, with. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been called to follow Christ, so do it. That's what he's saying. How do we do it? He says, with all humility and gentleness. Notice those two virtues, humility and gentleness. Many years ago, Dr. Robert Mounts was inaugurated as the 15th president of Whitworth University in Spokane. And as part of the inaugural uh, ceremony there, they had asked uh, Dr. David Allen Hubbard, who was then the president of Fuller Seminary, to come and to give the address at this inauguration celebration. So he wanted to, uh, to direct a few comments to Dr. Mounts, and he looked directly at him when he said this to him. He said, Let your sign on the door describe the office. Let it be part of your decor and not of your person. It's not a birthmark or a tattoo. It's just a sign on the door. Presidency, I am saying, is about function, not about being. One can succeed at it and be a wretch. One can fail at it and be a saint. That sign on the door, presidency, let your mind engrave above it higher titles, person, Christian, family man, minister. Practicing humility goes a long way in maintaining unity in the church. But exercising gentleness does too. That's another virtue here that Paul mentions. You know gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? In Galatians 5, and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Gentleness, being gentle with each other. Are you gentle with others with whom you disagree? You might not see eye to eye on the subject of vaccines or masks. Are you gentle with them? Or do you have a tendency to be curt and brusque, gruff? How do you come across? Paul told Timothy, his younger colleague, in his second letter, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Even those people that we don't like, we don't agree with, who kind of get our, you know, Get us riled up internally. Gentleness, a virtue applauded by Aristotle, sneered at by Nietzsche, encouraged by Paul, must be exercised by all of us to maintain church unity. Well, Paul goes on to say, with patience. So we're walking on this manner worthy which we've been called by the Lord following him following in his footsteps humility which of course characterized Jesus gentleness which of course characterized Jesus patience patience with patience bearing with one another in love the word patience has an interesting root that means to suffer. You know that we often learn patience through suffering? I'm a pretty impatient person. I hate waiting in lines. Anybody here like waiting in lines? I hate waiting in lines. I will do almost anything to keep from having to wait in a line. You know when I'm in the grocery store, you know, you're there and you're seeing a bunch of people all stacked up? It's like I'll look for any way out. How's the self check doing? Who's moving fast? Which clerk is really on it today? Let me get out of here. Patience is a very important virtue when it comes to maintaining church unity. I love what he says next. Bearing with one another in love. Do you know that means really being tolerant? Tolerant. Giving people space. I loved what my old friend Wes Hartman said about that one day. We were talking about it. He said, you never know what somebody has gone through that day. You never know. Somebody's, you know, mad at you or yells at you or something. It's like, just step back. What what happened to them today? Well, that brings us to the second point that I want to make, and that is that we need to realize that church unity does not mean church uniformity. Church unity does not mean church uniformity. What does this mean? (laughs) Well, it means that uh, not everybody's going to look alike, (laughs) be the same age group, or be the same political affiliation. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We agree with the essentials of faith in this church. That draws us together. But there's a lot about us that's different. It should be. Dick Halverson, who was the chaplain of the United States Senate when President Reagan was in office, he said, diversity is essential to unity. I must be about unity, not conformity. I can't imagine a painting. All one color. You know, Paul likened the church to the body of Christ, or to the body, and human body, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 12. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the fact that, you know, we have lots of different parts in our body. They all have different functions. You know, the eye is different from the ear. The ear is different than the nose. And yet, all these various organs and appendages and so forth are needed to make a human body. And so it is in the body of Christ. We have different gifts. But we have one body, one church. And all the various gifts are needed to make our church a healthy church. Your gifts are needed, your spiritual gifts. Now, I don't know what they are, but I hope you know what they are. Every one of us should know what our spiritual gifts are. And not only know what they are, we should be using them in the body of Christ. So let me ask you, are you? Are you using your gifts in the body? We need you to use them. For this to be a healthy body, for it to be growing spiritually and numerically, we need all of you to use your gifts. I don't have the gift of service, but thankfully, A lot of you do. (laughs) My gifts are faith, leadership, and teaching. And what I'm doing, even though I've been retired for three years, is I'm trying to use them. I've been working with our presbytery in church revitalization. It's a volunteer job up until just recently when they basically forced us to get a salary. But we should all be contributing, using our gifts, regardless of whether you're retired or not. Different gifts, but the same Lord, the same faith, the same spirit. Now, what happens to a church if people don't use their gifts? Well, look at your body. <laughs> what happens if you don't exercise? If you don't get out and walk or don't do something here to, you know, lift some weights or do something to get your blood going and to help you feel better? I mean, you, you get lethargic, don't you? Run down tired, weary, same happens with the church. People look at churches and say, what happened to that church, you know? It's dying. Well, people aren't using their gifts. People are not involved, active, participating. And it's up to all of us to do this, see. Many years ago, I used to meet with another pastor This is uh, back early on, back in those days when we were having those uh, Pioneer Day services. And we would meet every week and review our Greek together so we didn't forget it. And we would share and we would pray. And uh, Phil was on the staff of a large church in Medford. And one day we were going through Ephesians. We were going through this passage. And he said to me, he goes, you know, Larry, he said, I hate to say it, but no one in church where I'm serving would ever admit to being a Democrat. I said, really? He goes, I said, why? He goes, well, the church leadership wouldn't stand for it. And I thought, how sad. That is wrong. Church unity does not mean church uniformity. Churches should be made up of people of all different varieties, all different races and ages and gender and ethnicity and ability or disability. It doesn't matter. Church unity does not mean church uniformity. That brings us to the third point that I want to make, and that is we're called to live peacefully with everyone live peacefully with everyone. Look again in verse 3. This is our key text. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Do you know the word for peace here appears in every single New Testament book with the exception of 1 John? I think that's significant. The New Testament writers want us to live together in peace. We were called to the bond of peace. Paul told the church at Rome, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. That's everyone. I served in uh, Southern California when I was in seminary, a part-time in a Presbyterian church down there as a youth minister. And... Um, After I graduated from seminary, we moved to Sacramento where I was in my first pastorate. And uh, about six months after we arrived in Sacramento, I got a very disturbing phone call from one of the people in the church in Southern California. Now, what had happened was the church had called a pastor during my third year there, and he had come in. He was from South Africa. He was a white uh, South African. And uh, he was pastoring the church. And a lot of his culture was you know, different, obviously, than Southern California. And uh, so Tony started there. And he and I got along very well. But what happened was some months after I left, he had um, divulged something that had been shared with him in a counseling session. he broken a confidential piece of information. And it uh, was, was hurtful obviously, to the person who was violated. And so Tony apologized to the person. In fact, he apologized to the whole church over the issue. And he clearly made, let them know he had made a big mistake. Well, this wasn't enough for a certain group of people in the church. They were very unhappy with him, but it turned out, later I found out, there were lots of other issues that they were unhappy about. They went to the presbytery and they got him removed from office. So he was taken out. And uh, this divided the church. And the phone call that I received was about two men in the church who had gotten into a fist fight in the parking lot, church parking lot, over the issue. And you know, my heart sank. And I thought, man, how sad, you know, that it came to this. And then I thought to myself and I prayed and I said, Lord, What can I do? Is there anything I can do to make sure that this kind of thing never happens in a church that I pastor? And so as I was wrestling with that, the Lord reminded me of Matthew 18. Do you know this passage where Jesus talks about what to do if you have trouble with a brother or sister in Christ? I don't have time to read it this morning, but I want you to mark it down if you need to. Matthew 18, verses 15 and 16. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 16. And what we do as directed by Jesus is we approach the person with whom we have the problem or the tension, the difficulty. We approach them. Now, that takes great courage, no question. But you bravely, courageously ask the Holy Spirit to give you the wherewithal to go to them in Christian love out of your concern for the body of Christ and your own personal relationship with them. And you try to resolve the issue, the tension at hand. Now, as directed by Jesus in Matthew 18, if that doesn't work, you get a friend, a mutual friend to sit down with the two of you and try to work out the difference. And if that doesn't work, you get a pastor or an elder to do it. So the whole idea behind this is to reconcile, to live peacefully with each other. And that brings us to the fourth point, and this is so critically important, to pray. We want to pray for the Holy Spirit to help us maintain our unity. Pray for the Holy Spirit to help us maintain our unity in the church. Look at what Paul writes in verse 4. He said, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times we observe that adjective one. That's the number of completion in the Bible. Paul emphasizes the oneness that we are to have in the body of Christ. Turn back in your Bibles. We do have time to look at this passage in John 17 where Jesus, in the longest prayer recorded of his in the Bible, prays for unity for his church. Look at John 17, verses 20 and 21. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, I do not ask for these only. This is verse 20. Meaning his disciples, who who he's referring to. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that is, subsequent generations of disciples like us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus uses The model of the Trinity, one in essence, three in person, as the basis of the unity of the church. Our unity should emulate the unity of the Trinity. See, that's what Jesus is saying. For the purpose of winning the world to Christ, that the world may believe that you sent me. That's the purpose. It's a purpose clause. So, our unity greatly affects our witness in the community. That's what Jesus is saying. To the extent that we allow the pandemic to divide us, our witness will be considerably muted and impotent in the community. Let me tell you, this will not be the last issue that Satan seeks to exploit. It wasn't, and it will not be. The Bible calls us to resist him. We must acknowledge his destructive and his divisive tactics. Our job, your job, my job, is to pray for unity, that God would help us pull together You know, the world's watching us. The world watches the church. It wants to see how we respond to these kind of crises. And right now, we look just like the world, unfortunately. Wouldn't it be wonderful, though, if we could stand up and be different? Say, we're pulling together. We don't agree on everything, but my goodness, we're pulling together. Our Lord wants us to maintain church unity. This involves developing Christ-like attitudes that promote unity. It involves remembering that church unity does not mean church uniformity. It involves living peacefully with everyone in the church, even with those people with whom you might not like or disagree with. And it means praying for God to give us the unity that he wants us to have. Now, as I close today in prayer, it's possible that the Holy Spirit has reminded you of someone in your circle of friends, somebody here in the church with whom you've had an argument or a heated discussion, or there's tension there between you. Ask the Lord to give you the strength to go to them And try to resolve your differences. It's not easy. Nobody said it's easy. It takes courage to do this. The easy thing to do is to ignore it and just pretend it's not there when you know in reality it is. So let's all try to do our part in keeping and maintaining unity. Let's pray. Lord, your call is very clear to us. We know you prayed for us that we would be one. And we need your help, Holy Spirit, in these difficult days during this extremely stressful and difficult time of this pandemic. Help us, Lord, to be able to pull together in Christian love. We need your help, Lord, if there's someone that we need to go to. Give us the strength, the courage to approach that person, to try to work out our differences, to do the very best that we can. I pray for this church, Lord, I thank you for it. Thank you for this important role that it has in the community. Help us to be your strong witnesses of unity for this community. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.